Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm Rob Wolf, the host of the show. I don't suppose I need to remind anyone that there's a presidential election coming up in the United States. Granted, it's more than a year away, but there's no shortage of information on the news about it. Well, today, I'm going to offer you some relief from the American way of choosing a leader as we turn our attention to a very different, more ancient way of selection, You'll understand what I mean after I introduce today's guest, who is none other than Sarah Monette. Under the pseudonym Catherine Addison, she wrote The Goblin Emperor, which won the Locus Award this year and has been nominated for the three other major science fiction and fantasy awards, Hugo, Nebula, and World Fantasy. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And congratulations on your quadfecta. I'm not sure what the, <laughs> the word is, but... <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, Tell me what that feels like when you when you get that kind of acclaim and validation. It's very it. I was not expecting any of it. Um, I, mean, I I'm very pleased, and yes, I think the book is an excellent book. But I really was not expecting the sort of overwhelming enthusiasm with which people have responded to it. Um, and I think there are a bunch of reasons for that. But yeah, it's it, it's lovely. It's <laughs> I don't want you to put you in a, a position of having to be immodest. But uh, <laughs> what do you think are some of the reasons for its its appeal as reflected in this home run of, of awards or nominations? Well, I think it is a book that is, that was quite deliberately trying to do several things that mm, fantasy right now has not been doing. Because so much of fantasy right now has been so influenced by George R. R. Martin, which, hey, that's excellent as it should be. But it does mean that things have been very grim and bleak and pessimistic and cynical, all of which are things that I share. Um, my first four books are actually much more like that. Uh, this book is quite unlike what I wrote before and probably is very unlike anything I'll, I'll write after. Um, so it is deliberately, it's not a utopia because it obviously not with uh, intrigue and backstabbing and anarchists and horrible social in- inequality and all of the other things going on, but it is utopianist in that is arguing that doing the right thing will win. That it, that if you try your best to be ethical and compassionate, you will come out on top. Um, and I wish I could say that I believed that worked all, all the time in the real world. But I think if we don't make up stories where it does work, it's never going to work. So from what I have gotten from fan mail and things online and general reactions people are really happy to see a fantasy novel that doesn't require them to slog through 
500 pages of angst, which is, it's purely, a, this is purely coincidental timing. You know, it's not like I sat down and said, I shall write something that will sell against George R. R. Martin. Um, I actually wrote this book in 2008, 2009, maybe. Um, so, you know, wasn't anything like what the current state of fantasy is now. It was just that was the book I was writing then. Wow. And you and you feel that this fortuitous timing, you know, brings it at a time when when people are, are looking for something like this, a story with more optimism. Yeah, that is what I've seen a lot of people saying. Um, this is also a book that's trying to do fantasy that doesn't involve questing back and forth across the map. Um, it's a fantasy that is taking one of the deeply ingrained tropes, which is the, the scullery boy who would be king. You know, the, it's the Arthur legend and any number of fantasy novels wherein the the protagonist is the young teenage, is the teenage boy who's been a scullery boy or a assistant pig keeper or what have you all his life and is sent off in adventures and quests and discovers that he is, in fact, the long-lost king of wherever he's the long-lost king of. This is much more of an, well, okay, if you're the long-lost king, what does that actually look like when you get on the throne? What is your political life going to be like as you are dropped into this role that you have no training for? So it's, in some ways, you know, it's it's just following something that we're all very familiar with to its logical conclusions. In some ways, it's trying to, well, I mean, what I was doing actually was trying to figure out if there was a way out of the French Revolution without the guillotine and the terror and all of the really, really horrific things that happened, starting from, you know, Louis Cannes, basically, Louis XV. Uh, and just can we can we get somewhere else? Is there anything we can do? That's very interesting, and that comes from your. Uh, I imagine some of those thoughts were percolating when you were getting your PhD in. Uh, well, in not just English literature. I read somewhere that you also studied French and uh, Renaissance, uh, the Renaissance period. Well, my my PhD is actually in Renaissance theater, English Renaissance theater, to be specific. Which one ought to be? I, I took French for seven years in junior high and high school, which actually included a fair amount of cultural history and other kinds of the, the things that you do in a high school French class. I happened to be very lucky and had an excellent French teacher who taught those things in such a way that I still remember them. Um, those are the best kinds of teachers. And, and where did you grow up? I grew up in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Great. It's wonderful that they had a, a, such an adept French teacher. Yeah. Well, it's um, Oak Ridge was one of the three secret cities of the Manhattan Project. So the national labs are there. It had, well, it had when I was growing up, I don't know if it still has, the highest PhD per square inch ratio in America. So the school system, the public school system there is excellent and has been for many, many, many years. Fantastic. And did, is that where your interest in the French Revolution perhaps Oh, that's certainly why I know anything about it at all. So I studied French in college. I was a double major in, they had a program that was sort of 
pick do it yourself mix and match between english and another modern language of your choice which french and other comparative literature things and then i was also a classics major so i was studying um, latin and ancient greek i came to madison to do my master's degree in english stayed to do my phd ended up specializing in the renaissance which made it very handy that I'd actually been a classics major, although I had not planned things that way around. Uh, but since all of the people whose work you read when you are reading uh, the playwrights of Elizabeth and James's reigns were men who had been raised to have Latin at least, and Greek most likely, and when Johnson sneers at Shakespeare for his little Latin and less Greek, we still have, we have to remember that that little Latin is more than anyone gets taught now unless they are actually a PhD in classics. So I, yeah, I did a little bit of everything and finally ended up focusing on Renaissance drama, but continued to be interested in all of these other things that I'd studied. And, uh, and just, I draw on them for my writing and, and Hopefully. Well, it's working so far. <laughs> well, so let's talk a little bit about Maya, who's the main character in The the Goblin Emperor. And as you've alluded to, I think, a little bit, uh, he is um, the heir to the throne of the elf empire, the elf lands. Yes. Uh, but he is a very distant heir, really. I mean, he's thrust onto the throne when his father, the emperor, and all the other heirs who would normally ascend to the throne ahead of him, they all die in an airship crash together. Yes. And so it becomes a story, as you've said, of someone who, really a genuine innocent, someone who's been raised, removed from the world of the palace until fate just literally overnight in an instant gives him absolute power and authority. I think it's a, it's a very interesting choice that you chose to build your story around around Maya and I wondered if you could say a little bit more about your interest in him as a um, as a character. Well, so I, when I started writing this book, I was mostly thinking I want to write something with elves in it and I want to write something with airships in it. And then well, I could do both those things. There's no rule that says I can't. Whereupon, because my brain works the way it does, I was immediately thought of the Hindenburg and, you know, terrible, fiery death. So I had to set up an airship crash that would matter in sort of a number of different ways, which obviously political is the easiest. So you have an emperor, but if the if the emperor is taken out and his expected heir takes the throne, there's no there's no story there either so you have to you have to take out i believe it's maya's father and all three of his elder brothers before you get to somebody who just never would have expected to come to the throne and just is not prepared for it and has no reason to ever have been prepared for it the other thing i was thinking about speaking of the influences of my past education on my writing I was thinking about Elizabeth I, who when her sister Mary died and she became queen, was actually living under house arrest in 
one of the Tudor's country estates, not knowing from day to day whether she might be executed or not, because her sister was um, a little bit of a whack job, or possibly more than a little. But so I I don't remember, even remember what it was I read at some point in my impressionable youth that was about, I think it was a novel, but it was about Elizabeth and her progress to London, where she's she knows from the beginning that she has to do this right. She has to be queen starting right now. And she actually had it easier than Maya does because she was... Um, she was young, female, very pretty, and she had the charisma that her father had. Henry VIII was a dreadful person, and yet he, he must have had tremendous personal charisma. And I think it's clear that Mary didn't, and Elizabeth did, that part of why she ruled successfully for so long was because part, partly because she was an incredibly canny politician, as you would be if you grew up the child of Henry VIII, and partly because she had that ability to make people want to please her. Maya does not have many of those advantages. Um, He, in fact, is at a tremendous disadvantage because, of course, he is the son of his father's least regarded wife and has been kept away from the court his entire existence and is half-goblin, which means that he stands out dramatically at a court full of elves. So it's not, it's not an exact analogy, but it is, it is, again, I was thinking about, thinking about unexpected succession. There's the Wars of the Roses in there too. You capture very well this mix of power that's conferred merely by the title. I mean, it's kind mm-hmm. of tremendous when Maya wakes up and suddenly the courier and everyone around him is bowing with their heads on the ground just because of the force of the title. And mm-hmm. yet there's also, as you've talked about Elizabeth, he has a very unique personality that over time also plays a role, I think, in the respect that people come to give him. Because you would think in a way about power is enough. He's got the title. People should listen to him. But, it, <laughs> but it's more than that. And you, you do show that, although his avenue towards earning that respect, I think, is probably very different. And maybe that loops back to some of the um, the optimism or idealism oh, yes. you were speaking about earlier. Yes. There are many historical courts in our own world where he would be dead. He would be dead within two weeks. Or he would be a puppet emperor for a year or a year and a half and would be dead. It, it wouldn't most likely work the way it does in this book and yes so this is a this is a book where i said all right he's he's naive and he has none of the information that he needs but he's a good judge of character and he is determined to be ethical i have a thing about ethics and making ethical decisions and politicians generally don't so, uh, so an ethical politician, uh, there's a piece of utopia for you, too. Well, maybe if a politician was raised far from the, yes. far from real, any experience of real politics and then was, was suddenly yes. elected overnight, you know, as a write-in candidate. Yeah, that's what they say about the presidency. Any man who wants it shouldn't have it. 
Yeah, exactly. I can I can understand that. And and Maya, he is very innocent, but he at least knows all that the etiquette and the, mm-hmm. the forms of address so that he can at yes. least play this role, even though he doesn't, as you say, understand any of it. Yeah, I, I cheated. Because if he were actually a scullery boy, there would be another part at the beginning of the book that's basically my fair lady for elves. Um, as they try to teach him how to speak and walk and hold his hands and umpteen thousand other things that he wouldn't know. Right. And walk with all those incredibly heavy jewels you're always putting on him. Every time he turns around, someone's putting another huge stone on his hand or his head or something. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I, in in that sense, I I cheated around the edge of the trope just because I didn't want to do the I didn't want to do that part of the book either Um, and it was not what I was interested in and I don't think it's you know if you want that story you go to see My Fair Lady or you read um, Shaw's Pygmalion or whatever suits your fancy you don't need that story over here well, it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's very plausible that he is uh, the black sheep of the family and his father has basically banished him because he didn't like his mother and he doesn't like him. He's only met him once or as, as yeah. far as Maya can ever remember. And yet he's a member of the court and the royal family. So he's learned, you know, he's learned the basics. He's learned to be a gentleman. And he's very richly drawn. And I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, you, you, you really, I mean, the reader spends all this time with this young man, 18 years old, who's learning and is struggling with all these strong feelings. I mean, he really hated his father, and yet he is supposed to publicly mourn him. Um, Mm -hmm. And he, you know, he's naturally tempted to be vengeful, but his impulse, he has an impulse to counter that and to be to be fair and not be vengeful. So you've really portrayed, uh, you know, his doubts and insecurities, balanced with his unique capacity for, for innovative ideas and the strength to break with tradition. I mean, he's, he's constantly surprising people by saying, no, you know what? I am going to go to the funeral of all the crew, too, who were on the airship that my father died. And everyone's like, why would the emperor go to, the, uh, to, to that? Yes. But he's like, no, that's, that's important. And I guess I, I, this may seem like a funny question, but how did you, as, the, as his inventor, get to know him so well? Well, the first thing well I, I you know i had to have a reason why he had been banished since he was a, an infant and obviously tensions with goblin with the goblins to the south and political marriages and you know unfortunate concatenations of circumstance that means that maya's father puts all of his anger at his previous wife's death on maya and his mother but and in thinking about that and in thinking about how he was how he would therefore have been raised in you know near poverty in one of these very distant estates i ended up thinking about his mother and what she taught him and that's what you see over and over again in the book is that he's trying to do what his mother would have wanted him to do which partly is due to a very different idea of how you handle class relations in Barajan and partly due to the fact that she herself got dealt a very bad hand and her religion is part of what helped her not be bitter and not be vengeful and not turn into Maya's sister-in-law Chevion 
And that was something else that was interesting to do was to try to talk about a religion that's actually important in a in in personal spiritual terms. In fantasy, religions tend to be important because the gods are real and they are characters and they come down and they mess with things. Or, you know, if you pray to them, stuff really happens. But mostly the sort of the personal relationship with a deity who may or may not exist that is the experience that people of faith have in our world doesn't get addressed. And so that was also that. So the, the, I went from, well, he's half goblin and he's exiled to, he learned most of what he knows about being a human being or, you know, an elf or a goblin about being a rational creature in the world from his mother. He did, certainly didn't learn it from Sethurus. And that's it. That's his guardian cousin, his abusive guardian cousin. Yes. His abusive, drunken, petty, vengeful, angry cousin. Um, and that part of what both Maya and his mother are basing their, their sense of ethics and their sense of compassion on is their religion which I should add, I'm an atheist. I have no, I have no horse in that race, but I recognize the importance of spirituality to people who do practice. And I thought, really, there's no reason not to have that be a benevolent influence for once instead of, you know, the, the terrible inquisition style theocracies and the, the gods who can't be disobeyed because they really will come down and smite you. And just talking about spirituality and ethics and compassion. And the idea that, that is actually quite similar to the idea that the hot-headed rebels in the North are talking about, where all men are, all, they have their own version of all men are created equal, and then the goblins have a quite different one. And inventing a philosophy of that that wasn't actually just a retread <laughs> of, of um, philosophies that come from our history was quite tricky. So mostly it was decisions that had to be made for plot reasons, turning into questions about, well, how did we get there? And then learning how you know how he got there tells me a lot about who he's going to be and so is it fair to say i mean i'm not gonna talk about all the plot twists but when you referred mm -hmm. to the um you know is there a different way to resolve the french revolution or a, a yeah. not not with, with a that sort of violence i mean is it through mm -hmm. his benevolent leadership i mean is that kind of the path when you have a leader who is willing to recognize inequality and not tell everyone to eat cake <laughs> yeah well okay there are lots of different things that went wrong to get to um the terror because you you i'm not even saying the french revolution was wrong although it was very bloody but the terror was definitely wrong um but the beginning point was an absolute monarch who you know his word is law he is he is the state his he has divine right of kingship so you can't argue with him not being able to give some of that power away you know louis Catorze went to a great deal of trouble to consolidate all of the power in the french political system in his person for very good reasons but that was not something that any of 
the succeeding Louis could possibly have maintained, again, with the personal charisma. And if any of them had been smart enough to see that and to say, mm, well, maybe, maybe no, maybe this is not a workable system. Maybe we need to try something else. We might have gotten somewhere different. I don't know. In many ways, I think the French Revolution was inevitable because it was the product of hundreds and hundreds of years of inequalities in French society. But at the same time, it's nice to, to imagine that maybe we could have done better. You know, may, Maybe there would have been a way that didn't have to end in bloodshed. Of course, it's also true that we don't know for certain that Maya's way isn't going to end in bloodshed. Um, it's just that he's he sort of negotiated the first step towards something that looks much more like a constitutional monarchy in which the various pieces of the government have power in proportion instead of all of it being over here or all of it being over there. Let me ask you about something I read in an interview that you gave to Locus Magazine um, some years ago. You said that you find reality very boring, and that (laughs) explains why you like to write about the supernatural, science fiction, the fantastic. And I kind of just wanted to hear a little bit more about that, how you channel this feeling of, of being bored with reality into fantastical storytelling. Well, partly that comes from when I was a kid, and my very quiet, safe, white, middle-class suburban life, while being very quiet and safe and nurturing, was also, you know, I, I thought more than once, why would anyone want to read about this? There's nothing interesting going on here. I didn't want to read about it. I've never been, I've never been fond of um, Beverly Cleary, great author of children's books, though she is, I can't stand them because they're exactly like real life and or exactly like my real life was. And that held just no interest for me at all. That you know, I wanted to read something that would let me get away from my real life. And I never lost the habit of looking for stories in things that weren't true, uh, in you know, in ghosts or wizards or, um, you know, tentacled monsters from the deep or whatever it is in the, in the particular story. Just, it's always more interesting to me. And that hasn't changed. I still, I have never successfully written anything that was straight realistic fiction. I, I don't get story ideas for that. I never have. I, I don't think I ever will. Um, I mean, the closest I come is mysteries, where I, I have had, I do have ideas sometimes crop up for mysteries, which are the kind of realistic fiction that I do like, partly because they're extremely unrealistic. So there you go. Uh, but even there, I'm much more likely to be trying to figure out, well, okay, how do I take Raymond Chandler and shove him into uh, Game of Thrones or or whatever other fantasy world you think of. I'm much more likely to be trying to do something still with some element of the fantastic in it rather than just reality. 
And yet, you, I imagine, because uh, you've sort of referred to this in the beginning, that you that you hope in the end your stories offer some relevancy in the in the real, albeit maybe boring, world in, <laughs> in terms of giving hope or inspiring. You know that things can change or or whatever, whatever the. Whatever. Well, honestly, as an adult, I think we'd be better off if a lot more people could have nice, quiet, boring lives. But also, I think, and obviously. I mean, obviously, I am not alone in enjoying fiction that flags itself very blatantly as not being true. I mean, all fiction is untrue. All fiction is lies. But fantasy and science fiction and horror sort of flag themselves and say, hey, not true. This isn't what the real world is like. This is something else. And people have been noticing for centuries that you can talk about things that way you you can talk about social realities in a different way if you put them in different clothes swift gulliver's travels right it just it's a it's a random example but it's really easy to see because it's political satire but it's also it also can be read as an adventure story or travel narrative and, you know, it's it's so often pitched as a children's story now, although that's not what Swift meant. Or C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, which are, of course, Christian allegory, but I didn't know that when I read them. I didn't know that until I was uh, in my late teens, I don't think. Now that I know it's Christian allegory, I, del- I dislike that aspect, especially because once you know it's there, you can't unsee it. Um, but at the same time, I loved those books and I still love them. And the story, the story and the thing it's talking about don't have to be, don't have to match perfectly, which is, I think the brilliant thing about fantasy as opposed to allegory in an allegory, it all matches up very carefully, um, like Pilgrim's Progress, which is just unmistakable because he, Bunyan is hitting you over the head with his message every step of the way. Whereas Lewis, his allegorical symbols are allowed to be characters. They are allowed to be, to have opinions, I guess is, is what I mean, maybe. And that makes it, the, the combination of the, of the realistic and the openly unreal is to me something that is endlessly fascinating and that I, I want to, I want to do when I write, um, and I enjoy reading when I find it. But that's yeah, that's the best answer I've got right now. It makes me. It certainly makes me think, and just the way I think a good book uh, makes me think because it also mm-hmm. gives the reader the freedom to interpret as they will. I mean, they always yeah. say, you know, I mean, there could be a symbol there, but if the you know the reader doesn't have to agree, the writer sometimes doesn't even know they put that there. So, well, there's at least a third of the things that you can find in my books for a random example that I have no idea are there. And yet I've had readers point those things, some of those things out to me and I'm like, oh, well, yeah, you're right. That is there. Creativity is so much a a process of the subconscious parts of our brains, the, the parts that don't have access to the rational conscious mind that don't get to talk about themselves as I, you know, they're not part of what Freud calls the ego. 
creativity is so much about those parts of the brain finding ways to talk, to to tell stories, to to talk about what's important, that I think you can't possibly recognize everything that you are putting into a story. And I suppose that counts for the reader, too. Their unconscious may be activated or responding to things as well. So yeah. you could have a conversation between two unconsciouses. Yes. I mean, that's why particular, it's certainly one reason why particular story tropes are so popular. The one that you see all over children's literature in which, and which in fact I'm using too, which is the the protagonist is, and fairy tales, the protagonist is under the guardianship of someone who is cruel or neglectful and is not the real parent, Cetherus, and yet is going to discover that their true identity is a magical or incredible, uh, just valuable that they are valuable and wanted. And I'm kind of unrelentingly not letting Maya have that because he now has to be the adult. He doesn't get to find another parental figure who will give him the affection and support that he needs as a child. Uh, But he does get away from Sethras. But that story resonates with all children, I think, Partly because it, you inevitably, no matter how picture perfect your life is, you inevitably have some day where you feel like your parents are treating you wrong. And I mean, for and for many children, that's that that feeling is objective reality as well. So, the idea of being able to escape from the conditions of your childhood is a trope that the subconscious, unconscious brains of many, many readers are ready to talk about, you know, they're ready to engage with. Mm, that's, that's interesting. I guess that explains why when I watched Bewitched as a kid, I always wanted Samantha Stevens to come and, and rescue mm-hmm. me and give me her magic powers. Not oh, that yeah. my childhood was so terrible, but as you say, it, we, we all go through those moments. It's part, part of becoming a functional adult, because otherwise, if you were never dissatisfied with the conditions of your childhood, you would never leave it. But also, I think it's just part of Part of being a, a human being in the world is that you feel, uh, as the spiritual says, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. And that may be more or less metaphorical depending on your situation. But that feeling of being alone and unloved is certainly a feeling that everyone can relate to in one way or another. Well, let me ask you a completely unrelated question, although maybe it is related because <laughs> uh, everything is related. But, yes. Um, but who is Catherine Addison? Maybe she's a motherless child, too, but that's, that's mm. the pen name you've used. Uh, yes. And so uh, I thought I would um, kind of wrap up just by asking how it came about that after having written a number of books as Sarah Monette, you decided or ended up. Uh, writing as Catherine Addison, uh, the Goblin Emperor, under that name. Well, okay, back in 2009, which was when um, the last of my four books, the Doctrine of Labyrinths series, came out, which was also back before Borders had gone bankrupt, and the world of selling, of publishers selling books to 
bookstores and then bookstores selling books to book buyers was still dominated by entirely by Barnes and Noble and Borders. What tended, what would happen was that if your first book didn't sell quite as well as expected, then the store wouldn't order as many of your second book. And then your publisher says, oh, well, that's not, they're not as interested in this. Maybe we won't push it as hard. Fewer books are sold and then the the store says well we we want even fewer of this third book and and it's a it's a vicious death spiral and eventually you get to the point where the publisher goes to the buyer for the bookstore and the buyer for the bookstore calls up your sales number on their computer and the computer says oh no 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 we do not want this person in our store she does not sell books and at that point your name is the, a deal breaker, regardless of whether the book is the most brilliant thing since To Kill a Mockingbird. Doesn't matter. But there's a very easy runaround, which is that if you if you come up with a pseudonym, even if everyone involved knows that it's a pseudonym and that it you are still the same person, because the computer doesn't know that the buyer can then once again say, oh, well, yes, that looks interesting. And that was the position I was in in 2009, where my book sales had ended up being so bad that my first publisher said, "Mm, no, we do not want an option on your next novel. Thank you very much for playing. And when Tor said, we really want to take you on, we're very enthusiastic and excited, but we can't do it under your real name. You have to pick a pseudonym. And I wanted to continue having a publishing career, so I picked a pseudonym. That's, I mean, that's the story. Wow. I mean, it's so, it's so pragmatic, you know, and it's, it's, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've heard people do it because they're switching genres and they don't want to confuse the audience, you know, trying to grow a different audience or. Yeah. um, But no, um, The Goblin Emperor was the next book. I I mean, that was the book I was going to submit to my first publisher under my own name. It's the book I submitted to Tor under my new name. Uh, there's no the the fact that it is quite different than my first four books is again purely a fluke. Well, does Catherine Addison have a career, or is she just a one book author? Is she like what we thought Harper Lee was until she pulled another <laughs> one out of the hat. Uh, I hope that. Well, I certainly hope that I continue to write books for Tor, and. I assume that those will continue to come out as Catherine Addison, especially now that with the four nominations and the quite lovely sales and all of the attention the book has gotten, Catherine Addison is now going to be a much more recognizable name than mine. I see. Well, I was thinking you could just call the shots now. You're, you know, you oh, could just <laughs> say, I'm, I'm, just call me <laughs> Sam and I'm going to publish another book. I mean, after, after, uh, all these nominations and all this acclaim, but I don't profess no. to know how the inner machinations of the publishing world work. No, the the author, unless the author is Harper Lee, and well, Harper Lee in her right mind, which uh, yeah. right. Um, <laughs> unless the author is actually a celebrity of fifty years standing based on one book, they do not have that kind of power. <laughs> All right. You t- you do you do it. You're, you're told you make compromises. Uh, you know they want they want me to 
sell them my next book. I want them to buy my next book. We meet in the middle as best we can, which is generally, I mean, Tor has been great to work for. I love my editor. The production staff is great. My publicist is great. I don't, I really, I don't have any complaints. And in fact, the, the pseudonym was their suggestion, but only because it was a well-known workaround, not because it was what they wanted to do. Thank you for that lesson in, in reality. The uh, cold, cruel reality of publishing. Exactly. Well, then maybe your next book could be about uh, publishing elves and how they reimagine the world of, oh, of publishing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you. Yeah, it's really been a pleasure. So I have been speaking with Sarah Monette, who is also known as Catherine Addison and the author of The Goblin Emperor, which won the Locus Award and has been also nominated for the Hugo Nebula and World Fantasy Awards. Please go out and uh, although there's no more borders, there's still plenty of independent bookstores and big online retailers and other places where uh, one can find the Goblin Emperor, and I strongly urge people to go out and get their own copy. I am Rob Wolf, uh, your host on New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. You can find us on Twitter at New Books Sci-Fi. We also have a Facebook page, and of course our website is www.newbooksinsciencefiction.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books. And thanks so much for listening.